very much for coming. And um, like I said, we're starting late, so I'm going to keep you here longer than perhaps 9.30. And it's a real challenge because I've been given 55 minutes with Q&A time included to do a session like this because typically I take an hour and a half. So I'm going to try to cover as much as I can. If not, you have the handout notes and, um, and you can come up and talk to me a little bit more as well after this. To those of you who were here earlier, I mentioned and said a little bit about my own background. I am not from the United States. Um, I'm originally Malaysian um, and I'm based in Singapore right now. And the ministry that I'm involved in takes me to different parts of um, Asia, um, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, um, Singapore, of course, and uh, Philippines and so on and so forth. Which I, I, as I look around the room, you know, I see and I know you all have friends, neighbors, colleagues, and, and, and classmates, roommates who are from that part of the world as well. But just in looking at my talk, um, I guess the perspective that I would um, be speaking from would perhaps be more um, Asian Chinese. So bear with me. Um, and hopefully we'll have a really good time just learning from each other, okay? You know, our world today, and, and I, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir, and each of our communities is becoming increasingly pluralistic, isn't it? Uh, in its culture and ethnicity. I remember my sister, she came out to visit the US um, last year, and she came back and she came out to California, and she, when she went home, she said, I went to the US, but it's not what I expected because I didn't see any white faces. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, she was out visiting California. So I said, I said, yeah, that's the US for you. You know, it's, it's just become so pluralistic in terms of its ethnicity and, and, and um, religious beliefs as well. And many of us have colleagues, uh, friends of different ethnic origins who, who are first generation uh, immigrants who are here and of varying religious commitments who share our public space and life. And for a lot of us, if not all of us, carrying out the Great Commission no longer requires us to even go beyond the next office cubicle or going beyond um, the next house on the street. It's right there. You know, before, it would be the case where if you want to reach Chinese in mainland China, we have to think of ways to, I don't know, smuggle, in, uh, smuggle ourselves in. But today, they're coming out to the United States. I was just reading this new, uh, report in the news about how one out of every four foreign students who come to the US to study is from mainland China. And there's an increase of 22% of students from mainland China who's, uh, who, uh, who's coming to the United States to study. What great opportunity. You know, we don't, we don't even have to bring the gospel out that they're coming here to our doorstep to hear the gospel. Um, opportunities abound for all of you here who live in the United States. Carrying out the Great Commission has become so much more easier. It's no longer a need for us to be immersed in that culture in that sense. But I think along with these opportunities to, uh, to share the gospel cross-culturally comes also the challenge of communicating the truth of the gospel in, in ways that are meaningful and relevant to someone who is so foreign to what is familiar to all of us. Now, I did not come from a Christian family, uh, as is the case perhaps for most of you. Uh, I grew up in a Taoist Buddhist family. I became a Christian only when I was 14 years old. And my parents became um, believers only in their 50s. That's like 15 years ago, you know. So a lot of the things that may be familiar to us, okay, a lot of the terms that we use, a lot of the, the concepts that we're so used to uh, may not be may not mean anything to some of these people who have come from different cultures, who are of different ethnicity. In present-day pluralistic America, we may find ourselves being either misunderstood of, or, 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 of uh, misunderstood as intolerant of other belief systems, or we're being drawn into a web of other issues uh, where we attempt to give an objective justification of the Christian faith. When we try to share the gospel with someone who, for example, is a Buddhist or a Muslim, you're being accused of trying to uh, brainwash this person, or you're being accused of, how, why are you so intolerant of other belief systems? If you are a Christian, that's fine. 
don't try to change um, our beliefs, right? And we Christians are, uh, are being accused of being bigoted or being intolerant uh, and a lot of name calling going on. The challenge for us is how can we share the gospel still with these people who have so little understanding of the Judeo-Christian worldview that, that we are so familiar with, perhaps. It is very difficult as it is for one person to persuade another to consider changing his worldview, even when both have the same cultural background. How much more would be the case if it's someone who is coming from a very different background or a very different worldview? When we communicate and defend the gospel among people from a non-Judeo-Christian background and culture, the barriers to effective, meaningful communication and dialogue are raised even much higher. We all know what it's like to share the gospel with someone, with a fellow American, let's put it that way. How much more would it be difficult when we're trying to share it with someone who's of a different culture, who's come from a, a foreign land, from a foreign culture, new to all these things that uh, we're so familiar with. And this evening, what I'm gonna do is quickly just run through some of the common challenges that we would perhaps face as we try to share the gospel with some of our friends who um, are of a different uh, ethnic ethnicity and of a different culture. Um, do I, I don't have answers to all this to all of these challenges. And I'm still learning along the way and, uh, in my ministry of working with uh, people of different cultures across Asia. But hopefully uh, this will be a good time for us to just um, interact and dialogue um, of what, how we can be more effective in sharing the gospel with um, cross-culturally. It would be good for us to consider some of the issues that often hinder communication and defense of the gospel in uh, cross-cultural settings. and and hopefully a better awareness of these challenges can help us to lower some of these barriers um, to sharing the gospel relevantly to our friends. The issues and the question concern will of course vary from culture to culture. For example, among Muslims in most contexts, the existence of God is not a question. All right? They believe that God exists. All right? Uh, on the other hand, this is uh, a significant question, the existence of God. Uh, this is a question for adherents of other non-theistic or naturalistic uh, people who come from a more naturalistic worldview. So again, it, it varies from culture, um, from different people and culture to culture. Um, and what I'm going to talk about is really just, I guess, a, a very general overview of some of these challenges. Firstly, I would want to encourage that as we talk to our friends, we want to be very careful of the terms that we use. I remember when um, my friends were trying to share the gospel with me when I was a teenager and they say, are you saved? You know? And my question is, saved from what? <laughs> you know? uh, but we forget a lot of times that even in our own conversation, we, we have this Christian lingo that's going on, right? Are you saved? Hey, come for fellowship. What does fellowship mean? <laughs> Right? Uh, and you'd be surprised how people um, out there don't really know what these terms mean. This, these are not terms that they use in the everyday conversations. Right? They don't say, hey, come have fellowship over dinner. They don't talk like that, but we do. Right? So we want to be very careful of our language. Uh, I spent a couple of years in Turkey as a missionary with a missions organization. And this was in, back in 99 when they had this major earthquake in Turkey. And I remember right after, two days after the earthquake, I was on my way um, to just get, uh, help out with the relief work. And in this little minibus, I was sitting next to a Muslim lady. And she was putting on a headscarf on her little girl, who is, I guess, eight years old or something. And we were having this conversation going, and uh, we were talking about, oh, this is such a devastating thing to have happened, such, you know, so tragic, so many people have died. And, and we talked about God, we talked about grace, and we talked about how, you know, in times like this, we hold on to the hope that we find in God. And, and I was like, wow, this is great. I'm having this, you know, this really meaningful conversation with this Muslim lady. And then it got to a point and I asked her, I said, why, why are you putting on a headscarf on your daughter, you know? And she said, oh, you know, I'm doing this, this because the reason why the earthquake has taken place is because Allah 
is not very happy with the way, with how we have responded to him. We have not been submitting ourselves to Allah and he has sent this earthquake as a punishment for our non-submission. And at that point, even though prior to that I was in total agreement with what we talked about, about God, about of, of hope and grace and, and even mercy, I realized that even though we were using the same term God, we were not talking about the same God. Because the God that I serve would certainly not send that as a form of punishment. And I realized that it is very important in, in our conversations with our friends from a different worldview, from a different background, uh, that we need to define the terms that we use. You know, a lot of times as Christians, we use terms like salvation, sin, eternal life, um, freely in our conversations. And we think that they hold the same meaning for the person to whom we are talking. In fact, we do this all the time without thinking too much about it, right? We talk about salvation, salvation through Christ, right? We talk about sin, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But I think when we are speaking to someone from another culture, we want to be careful because the familiar terms may not be communicating precisely what we're trying to say, despite the fact that some of them may have lived here in the United States for most of their lives. The term God, for example, when you talk to a Muslim, obviously it refers to a God who is very different from the God that we Christians worship. When you're talking to someone who is a Chinese, the Chinese words, there are three different Chinese words that can be used to refer to God. Right? For those of you who, who speak uh, Mandarin would know the three different Chinese words that we use to refer to God. And you want to and you want to define which it is that you are referring to. We must carefully define what we mean by our terms and concepts in, in our talk with our friends. For instance, there is a need for us to take time to elaborate on the Christian view of original sin and explain what we mean when we talk about the sinful nature, for example. Because when you're talking to a Muslim, you realize that the Muslims do not have um, the doctrine of original sin within their worldview. They believe that Adam and Hawa have sinned in the garden, but they have gone back to Allah and seek his forgiveness and Allah has forgiven them. So that's why when you talk to a Muslim, when you talk about sin, it's really more of you know, how they have disobeyed Allah. There's no concept of original sin within the Islamic worldview. When you talk to um, someone whose worldview is influenced by confusion thinking, for example, um, confusion teaching on sin refers only to acts of man's conscious volition, which can be desisted from the act of the will. In other words, if I am a person, you cannot talk about how I, am, I have this tendency towards sin. Okay? Because I can will to not sin. But that goes against what we Christians believe about the idea of original sin. And the different schools of Confucianism, for example, would talk about how men are, are, are essentially good, okay, um, but along the way we have been influenced and therefore we sin. And another school of thought in, within Confucianism would teach that men are essentially evil, okay, but we can strive to be better or to be good. All right. So when you talk to someone who's obviously from a, a more Confucianistic worldview, you want to define and talk about what it is that we're saying when we talk about how um, we are all tended to, towards sin, original sin, what happened in the Garden of Eden. You know, when I first became a Christian, um, around 14 years old, I was very excited. I wanted to go home and share the gospel with my dad, um, who is more of a cultural Taoist Buddhist, I guess. And I said, you know, Father, you have to believe in Jesus because if not, this is not a great way to share the gospel, by the way. <laughs> yeah, if you don't believe in Jesus, you will go to hell. You know, I was trying to threaten him with the reality and the fear of hell, right? And he's, and his response was, uh, was classic, you know. He says, well, that's not too bad. I'll get reunited with my friends who have gone before me. <laughs> not exactly the kind of response I expected from him. 
Well, you have to understand when you speak about hell to a Taoist Buddhist, for example, you need to define it clearly as a place of God's final retributive punishment because many nominal Taoist Buddhists believe that hell is actually a parallel universe uh, to this world where the deceased wait to be reincarnated and it is a place where um, souls would have similar needs as we do in this world. That's why if you observe the, some of the rituals that uh, Taoist Buddhists um, participate in um, at their funerals and, and at, um, at certain festivals throughout the year, you see they would burn things, uh, effigies of like um, DVD players, you know, and today they have iPads, iPhones, um, uh, car, right? Some of you, you know what I'm talking about, right? And this is because they believe if they burn items that are made of paper here in this world, they would receive it in the other world. As they wait to be reincarnated, they're having a lot of fun in, down in hell. Okay, not quite a place you would not want to end up in. In fact, you know, um, perhaps it is a place where you actually get some of the things that you've always longed for and never got in this world, right? So you want to define that, what, what do you mean by hell? In fact, a lot of us Christians don't have a clear understanding of what we mean by hell, right? Something for us to think about. Savior, you know, Jesus Christ is our savior. Sometimes we forget when you talk to a Buddhist that the term savior could refer to Buddha himself or the various bodhisattvas that exist out there that they believe in. Okay, savior, this, what is the role of a savior? And who is this savior that we're talking about? You want to define that. And what has this savior done for us? For some Buddhists, their savior has paved the way by leading them to the way of enlightenment the Four Noble Truths, the um, Noble Eightfold Path. The Saviour has shown the way by that. But the Saviour that we're talking about died on the cross to save us. He's done something that is totally radically different from all the other so-called saviours that are out there. So you want to, again, <coughs> define and explain what has this Saviour done for us. Heaven. I was recently in, um, invited to speak in Malaysia at a university setting. It was an interfaith forum in Malaysia. Um, it was a semi-private university and because Malaysia is a predominantly Muslim country, a lot of Middle Easterners uh, feel very comfortable to study in Malaysia. And so this was an interfaith forum where they wanted to just um, help students understand the different religions that are out there. So we are represented by a Christian, a Muslim, uh, a Buddhist, and a Hindu. And I naturally represented the Christian worldview. And the topic that, uh, the theme of the evening was um, life after death, which is great, right? Um, and every speaker had 20 minutes to talk about what happens um, uh, life after death, right? And um, And it was, it, was, it was quite an opportunity, I felt, for us to really bring out the credibility and the beauty of the Christian faith. Because as you listen to how the Muslims were talking about life after death, and, and you compared it to what the Christians view, okay, truth of what happens after death, you can see which one makes more sense, the whole, the, the, how, how it's coherent, our understanding and our belief of what happens um, after death was much more coherent and much more acceptable to the Muslim and to the Buddhist understanding of life after death. And it was fascinating because it was attended by 800 students, uh, most of them male and most of them Middle Easterners. And this is the first time for a lot of them to actually hear a different view okay, from what they are used to about what happens in life after death. The reason why I bring this up is because for, um, for the Muslims, heaven is a place that is flowing with alcohol and filled with virgins and, and you can have every imaginable form of pleasure that you crave for fulfilled. That for them is heaven. 
when you're talking to some Buddhists, some Buddhists would believe that uh, heaven is uh, what they call the Western paradise. Okay? It's a place where you wait to be reincarnated, where you wait for your turn to be reincarnated into your next life. That's where your karma comes into play and so on and so forth. So when you talk about heaven to someone who is from a different um, worldview, then you are, you need to define what do you mean by heaven, being in heaven with God. Heaven is a place where we enjoy the presence of God, where we enjoy worshipping Him and, and enjoy um, reconciliation with the ones that we love, who have gone before us, who are also found in the Lord. But when you talk about heaven to a Buddhist, it could mean totally different thing. It could mean enlightenment. And enlightenment in some forms of Buddhism would mean uh, the extinguishment of the self. All right? Which, of course, again, is, is, is really hard to conceive. How is it that if yourself has been, has been extinguished, how is it that you realize that you have been enlightened? Right? Um, as a side note, if you find Buddhism um, very difficult to understand or you find Buddhism very baffling, it is not you, it is the belief system itself. Um, in fact, today when I do a session on Buddhism, I, don't, I no longer call it Buddhism because it's not, it's Buddhisms, because there's just so many different forms that are out there. Okay, that are not just doctrinally different, okay, but they're practiced very differently in so many different ways. All right. So th these are some of the terms that you want to define when you're talking to your friends. And you can think of other terms as well that, that, that uh, you need to clarify. This is what you mean. Okay. And a lot of times, um, earlier on, I think, was it um, Paul Copan who said something about the art and the science? Yeah. And this is really more of the art, where you want to clear away some of the muddles and misunderstandings before you really get down to the science of talking and defending the faith and the gospel. Because you want to need, you need to clear away some of this misunderstanding and, 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 and uh, define some of these things before you actually get down into your conversations. Secondly, a negative impression of Christianity. And I think, unfortunately, Christianity has suffered, uh, throughout history, has suffered a um, bout of bad public relations. And a lot of times for these people who have come, uh, who are who've come from um, different parts of the world to the US. I forget that I'm here in the US. Um, from observing the portrayal of Westerners in television and movies and, and, and just popular media, people of other cultures frequently mistake those who merely participate in Western traditions with Judeo-Christian roots like Christmas or Easter for bona fide Christians. They think just because they celebrate Christmas or just be because they celebrate Easter, they must be Christians, which of course we all know is not true, right? Um, in fact, a lot of times if you are white, okay, you are considered as a Christian. You know, I hear that all the time when I talk to people, uh, when they say, but he's white. I say, so? <laughs> just because you're Caucasian doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Right? But this is, this is the mindset that is out there. In fact, Christianity is often viewed as a Western religion and therefore not quite relevant for Asians. You know, I was uh, speaking to um, um, the ministry that, we, uh, that I work with. We, um, we were able to bring together a group of uh, pastors from China. We brought them out to a secure location and uh, 200 of them and we basically gave them a week-long training in apologetics. And uh, one of the questions that was raised by a pastor um, there was, he said, you know, one of the difficult things that we face is trying to convince um, our fellow Chinese that Christianity is for them as well. Because they believe, well, the, the Westerners, the white people, they have their revelation in the Bible, in, in, in scriptures. We Chinese have revelation in the Tao. Right? So why do we need to believe their revelation in the Bible when we have our own revelation within the Tao? All right. I'm not, give you the, I'm not gonna give you the answer to that question, but basically these are some of the issues that they struggle with, okay? Besides, in the past, they have had bad experiences with 
Unfortunately, Western missionaries who've made, uh, who've made their way to different parts of Asia and who've not really represented uh, Christianity too well. Um, you know, in Turkey, even until today, on television, they would show movies of the Crusaders and how brutally they would, um, uh, they treated some of the villagers as they went past Turkey towards Jerusalem. And it's unfortunate because we know that was not truly representative of uh, what the Crusaders were really all about. Okay. But we all know as, uh, as human beings, we tend to remember the negative better than the positive, right? When I lived in Turkey, I remember a Muslim college student's, uh, student asking me one time. She said, you know, why are Christians so immoral? If you, you guys talk about how Jesus is, uh, was a righteous man, he's the son of God, he, he taught people to be good, to be righteous. Um, why is it that Christians are so immoral if Jesus had taught them otherwise? I was very baffled at her, uh, her question. I mean. Uh, um, she's not met a lot of Christians. So I asked her, I said, um, what was it that prompted this question? And she said, well, you know, I was watching this, uh, this show on TV, uh, Dynasty, and, uh, and the Christians in that show, they were just, you know, uh, very immoral. They had different uh, husbands and, and uh, different girls that they, they go out with and, and do immoral things with. And, and I just, I, I didn't know whether to laugh or to be upset, okay? Because apparently this, this young lady who is a Muslim, she got her impression of Christians from watching Dynasty, right? And some of you are too young probably to know what, that, what that's about. It's a popular television soap opera back in the, uh, in the 80s, right? Something like what, Dallas, right? Uh, that basically, well, soap opera, what do you expect? So the impression of Christians that some of these people get okay, about Christians is from soap opera, okay? Uh, would, is that surprising? Is that surprising that therefore uh, these people have a very negative impression of Christianity? Another problem is that some people from other cultures have only been exposed to some form of Christianity, but not one that is representative of biblical orthodoxy. Often what they know of the Christian faith is what they read or watch in uh, the media. And the media, as we all know, is not uh, exactly friendly to evangelical uh, Christians. Once when I was speaking at an interfaith forum, this is the same forum, but they hold it twice a year and I've spoken at there a couple of times. This was a different forum. Um, a male student of Middle Eastern descent came forward because what follows after the talk is a one and a half hour of Q&A's and they can just ask any questions that they have, which is a great opportunity for you to actually to share the gospel, right? So this young man, he comes forward and he said, you know, Christians have always taken pride in their rigid and self-righteous moral code. Jesus, you know, you talk about Jesus being a righteous man. But recently it seems that the church has shifted its stand by allowing practicing homosexuals into the clergy. Tell me, how can I believe that the Christian religion is true when its principles are so easily compromised according to social pressure? So that was his challenge to me. And of course, clearly we see that this young man's complaint against Christianity was based on what he had read in the news, right? Uh, what he read in the news is about a certain denomination's um, acceptance of gay priests, but he had taken this liberal departure from orthodoxy to be true of all Christian churches, which of course we know is not true. It's just a very small fraction within Christendom that, that is really compromising their stand on homosexuality, right? But for them, this is representative of what Christians are like and what Christ, how Christians practice their belief. And such a misunderstanding of the Christian faith among believers of other religion is, is more prevalent than we think. Just because they've lived in the United States for a long time does not necessarily mean they know what the Christian faith is about. In fact, just because you've grown up in the church doesn't mean you know what the Christian faith is all about. And I'm so glad that this, this whole conference started by a session by Dallas Wheeler just talking about knowledge 
and really ultimately apologetics. And I agree 100% with him that ultimately apologetics is really pastoral. And this is what I have found even in my own experience, uh, in my own personal walk with the Lord and in my experience with just um, working with different Christians around the world. We talk about defending the faith. What is that to defend if you don't even know what the faith is about? How are we to defend and what is there to defend if we don't even understand what it is that we are, uh, are called to defend? Thirdly, I think there is a need for us to understand the religious dynamics that are attached to, a cultural, uh, to our cultural and personal identity. Um, this was a few years back and I had just finished doing a workshop um, on a Christian response to Chinese and Taoist ancestral uh, veneration. This young man came up to me after my session and, and he told me his story. And basically this is what he said. He said, um, you know, I, I'm a chemical engineer for a multinational corporation. And uh, he's of ethnic Chinese background, he, but he's Malaysian. Uh, his family professes to be Taoist Buddhist, but they're not really actively going to temples or anything like that. Um, when he left to study engineering uh, in Australia, he, he, um, he became a believer. He, somebody shared the gospel with him and he became a Christian. And um, when he left to study in Australia, he was the pride and joy of his father. And I think for a lot of ethnic Asians here, you probably know what that's like when you are finally sent off to university, your parents have invested all their savings, that they've saved all their lives and say, look, I'm just going to give this to you, you're going to make good with this, right? And this is exactly what happened to this young man. His father sent him abroad to get a degree to come back. And a few years later, he'd finished his studies, he's returned back home to his parents. And by this time, he's a Christian now. And he said, one of the first things that I wanted to do when I got home was to share the gospel with my father. This good news that I have found, I want to share this hope and this truth in Jesus that I found with my, with my father, with my family. <laughs> and he said, so one day I, I uh, had this opportunity to sit down with my dad and I was talking to him and I shared with him about Jesus. And his father is a very typical Asian father who doesn't say too much, you know, you listen and, and doesn't show too much emotions. I see some of you smiling at me because you probably have a, a similar, uh, know of similar parenting styles. Um, and so this young man was talking to his dad about Jesus and telling him about how he's become a Christian, he's found God. And the father didn't say anything, he did not respond in any way. He walked off and then he came back and he had tears in his eyes and and as Asians, you know, you don't see your father cry too much, okay, if ever. And this old man, he had tears in his eyes and, um, and he looked at his son and he walked off again. And my, this young man said, I've never understood what happened. I just told him about Jesus. I told him about this good news that I've become a Christian. I found hope. And my father's response was he had tears in his eyes, he didn't say anything, and they never talked about what happened. And he said, this afternoon, after sitting through your workshop on ancestral veneration, I finally realized what it was that broke my father's heart. You see, within the Chinese, a lot of the Chinese Taoist Buddhist worldview, um, ethnic Chinese, wherever they're found in the world, they typically honor loyalty to family and community greatly and much seriousness and effort are placed upon respecting the older generation, particularly parents and grandparents. The family value of filial devotion has its roots, of course, in Confucius teaching, where filial piety is among the greatest of virtues. All right? And this obedience and this respect and this, this devotion to your parents and to the older generation is an unconditional obligation to be shown towards both the living and the dead. So, so you'll find some Chinese home will have ancestral tablet because this is to honor them, right? 
And, uh, and even though filial devotion is based on the central doctrine of Confucianism, today the practices of veneration of ancestors that are being performed is really more of a syncretism of Taoism, Confucianism and Buddhism that talks about reincarnation and so on and so forth. And that's why when you look at a lot of the funeral rituals of uh, a lot of the Chinese, you will see that it's really a, a series of different things that uh, the family members would perform for the dead soul of, uh, of their parents or their, the older generation. Uh, for example, it is believed that uh, the ancestors will stand many chances to be reborn uh, until they achieve enlightenment. That's why they end up in either in hell or in heaven, but regardless of where they end up, they are waiting for reincarnation again. And some of the things that a person can do to be assured of reincarnation is the performance of some of these death rites that, uh, that one's descendants can do in proxy. For example, and typically a son would do that. If your father has passed away, you would do certain things to ensure that your father would be reincarnated um, into a better life. Okay? Uh, therefore, if a child truly venerates his parents and truly loves his parents, he would perform as many of such rituals as possible uh, upon their death to ensure that their parents would be reincarnated well. Right? And therefore, a lot of China, ethnic Chinese who have converted to Christianity, um, like myself, would reject the tradition of veneration of the dead completely because it's, it's, a, it's, it's based on superstition, it's a syncretism of Buddhism, Taoism and Confucianism and so on. Right? And it's typical to find that one of the main objections to the conversion of a family member, especially the son, is that the teachings of Christianity conflict with the individual's absolute loyalty to, the fam to his family and to one's heritage. In other words, once you become a Christian, you can no longer perform these rituals. <coughs> and by doing that, you're actually um, betraying your parents. Okay. And therefore, this young man said, now I realize why my dad was so upset and had tears in his eyes. Because when my friend was, when this young man was telling his father how he has found hope in Christ and how he has become a Christian, that's not what the father was hearing. What the father was hearing is that when I die, I will no longer have a son who would do all this in proxy so that I will be reincarnated well. And that for him was heartbreaking. I no longer has a son. I no longer have a son who would love me enough to participate in all this for my soul. And he was hearing something else. In fact, one of the chants of um, the communist Chinese is one more Christian, one fewer Chinese. One more Christian, one fewer Chinese. In other words, when a, when a Chinese become a Christian, he's no longer Chinese. Okay. Same thing in Turkey where I was a, a missionary for a few years. A lot of times when a Turk becomes a Christian, he is seen as someone who has betrayed his, not just his, his, um, his religion, but he's seen as someone who's betrayed his nationhood, someone who's betrayed who he really is, culturally, ethnically, and, uh, and, and uh, religiously, I guess. And therefore, uh, uh, for this reason, I think we want to be sensitive sometimes to, um, to the to people that we are talking to who is from a different culture. I think there is a need for us to see, to understand what are some of the implications and some of the cultural nuances that come along with the religious belief. In fact, a friend uh, told me of an encounter that he had with a lady. This lady was, was fully convinced of the truth of the gospel, but she was struggling to accept it for herself. She said, I believe, I believe what you say to be true but I find it very difficult for me to accept it. The main obstacle was, that was hindering her from accepting Jesus was the fate of her late mother. And she said, if what you say about God and reality is true and Jesus is the only way to eternal life, then I will have to live with the dreadful thought that my mother who died a Buddhist is now lost forever and I will never see her again. And this is a truth that is too painful for me to accept. In other words, if she chooses to become a Christian, she will have to, have to um, adjust her view of reality to accept the fact that her mom, who died without Christ, may be in hell forever. 
And that was a truth that was too painful for her to accept. And that for us sets us up as a challenge to figure out whether there is a way to locate some of the traditional values of other cultures within the Christian worldview. The onus is on us to learn and study about competing worldviews and religions and their cultural expressions. We must consider how to ask probing questions tactfully and learn to listen attentively as we seek the help of the Holy Spirit to discern the core issues at hand. Because a lot of times, the question that is being asked is not really the question that they have. It's something that is beyond what is being said. We must learn to differentiate the various religious elements that are so closely entangled and nuanced in the culture. You know, a few years ago, some PhD students um, from top universities in China signed a petition against the celebration of Christmas. They said the celebration of Christmas is, an, uh, uh, is another invasion of the Western culture into China because, you know, during Christmas time, you know, you, uh, shopping malls and all that in China would, um, would be saying, oh, Christmas sale and so on and so forth. And young people in China would wish each, wish each other Merry Christmas. But um, some of these top PhD students from China said, this is another uh, uh, invasion okay, of Western culture and we must resist Western cultural invasion and we must not celebrate some of these things. And this is a, a, a re, something that is very real to them. That if you become a Christian, you're becoming very Western. And the challenge for us is, how can we present the gospel as something that is relevant to them within the culture? How can we present the truth of the gospel? How can we present Jesus to them as someone who is relevant to them as well? Not just for um, certain people groups around the world. And I think a better appreciation for the various cultural and religious expressions will help us to communicate meaningfully and tactfully as we persuade our friends from other cultures to seriously consider the truth and the relevance of the Christian worldview for them. I don't have much time. I ha um, you have the handout notes. I'll just have some questions. I'll take some questions. I think that might be more helpful as well, uh, for you. So. Great question. The question is, how do we address the negative impression that Christianity has with uh, non-believers? Non it's tough, you know, um, because even in my own experience, I encounter um, Christians who are not very Christian in the way they live their lives. And this really goes back to, uh, if you go to my notes in Crossing the Cultural um, Gap, it's a second point in engaging in agape apologetics. And ultimately, I think it's very important for us when we talk about defending the faith, when we talk about um, sharing the gospel with someone who does not know Christ, it has to be motivated by love. It has to be motivated by love. Um, it has to be rightly inspired by agape love. And you know love takes time. And uh, Dallas Willard earlier on said something about inviting them to experience, okay, the, to the Christian experience. And I think part of, part of exposing them to the true Christian experience is in your relationship with them. You know, it's going to be tough for you to try to talk them and convince them uh, to saying, no, you know, these people are not, uh, not true Christians. I, I think... Uh, there's further, enough damage done, there's no need for us to further do that. I think what is important is how we relate to them that is ultimately very important. Um, I, I want to just share two, uh, two um, stories with you. I was speaking to a group, uh, it was an evangelistic meeting in Hong Kong. 
And after my message, you know, two different people came out to talk to me. The first one, he came out with his, uh, with, with his girlfriend and he had some questions about uh, the resurrection and so on and so forth. And, and we talked about that and addressed that. And after that, he, you know, he looked at me, he said, you know what? I'm still not convinced that I should be a Christian because when I observe the Christians that I know, uh, I don't think I want to be like them. That totally broke my heart. What do you say to that? I didn't, I, I didn't know what to say. I told him, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Second person came up, had tears in her eyes. She said, I want you to know that tonight I accepted Christ into my life. And, he, and she was telling me her story about she is a refugee um, from, um, from uh, Vietnam and, um, and how her family was just on a boat going to Australia, you know, and just the, the, the hardship that the family went through. And she said, you know, all my life, I never realized how God was actually pursuing me like the hound from heaven, you know. All these people who helped me along the way, who, who showed me love, they were Christians. And I did not realize that. And just, she was just, you know, relating to me the various experiences that she had with Christians who were there for her, who loved her unconditionally. And she said, tonight, I realized that they were all the hands, um, the various hands extension of the body of Christ. You know, and she said it was the love of Christ that convinced her that this is for real. You know? So two very different stories. Right? And I think what really ultimately uh, says a lot is the fact that if it's motivated by true love, people would see that it is authentic and it is real. Okay? And it is true. Because if it's true, it has to be real. Next question. You know, actually, I started late, so I should have more time, but no mind. Yes. Kind of personal. I, don't, I know there's no exactly an answer. So if you share a gospel with your parents, sometimes their question is really like emotional. It's not really rational. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you really easily, emotionally, just mm -hmm. like follow them, like it's hard to like say right. it rationally. Right. Like for these times, it's kind of like how you, you can still be not emotional but still right. sharing your points. Because at that point, you're like, uh, I don't know how to say it, but I would say, oh, shoot, I should say this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. This is about sharing um, the gospel with our parents specifically, I, I guess with the older generation in our family. It's tough, and especially if you're of Asian descent, you know, it's difficult because there's a Chinese saying that some of you would know. The older generation will tell you that I've had, have eaten more salt than you have eaten rice, right? Some of you know that saying, right? So who are you to tell me what is true, right? Uh, and this is where the older generation in the church comes into play. You know, it's very difficult for us as the younger generation to share the gospel with our parents. But I would say this is where all the aunties and uncles in the church come into play who are your peers of your parents because they will be more likely to open up and listen to someone who's of their age or older than them than to us. So I would encourage that. Um, in my case, you know, I'm... I've attempted to share the gospel with my parents, didn't work out quite the way I wanted it. Um, but eventually my parents became uh, believers through their friends, their peers, you know. And I, I, and I think um, that would perhaps be the way to go with trying to share uh, gospel with our parents and our family members who are older. And it is true, you can get emotionally charged and especially because they've known us all our lives and they would say, you are Christian, you know. It's, uh, so I would encourage that you would try to get someone who is of the same age as your parents in your church to perhaps talk to them and uh, be friends with them and yeah. Does that help? Yes. Uh, in your travels, in your circles, have you, um experience the idea of that maybe in, in Christendom there might be a, a time for uh, more of show me your faith by what you say instead of, and by what you do instead of what you say uh, speaking to the your answer to the other lady about Absolutely. Faith, love and maybe leading with 
acts of service and acts Absolutely. Of, along that line. Can you speak to that and, and what you've seen around the world? Mm -hmm. what, it, just in general in Christendom, <coughs> are, 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 are we moving towards that or are we still going forth with our words and letting our actions catch up? I mean, where are we at with that? I think we're moving towards that. Uh, perhaps um, slower than we should. <laughs> Um, but you have a great point, and uh, again, I want to bring it back to the whole um, Asian uh, context. Um, in Asia, people are very pragmatic, and I think that's part of our Confucian um, <coughs> worldview. Okay, we're very pragmatic. Um, something is true when it works, right? Um, and I think this is where the whole moral <laughs> apologetics come in. How you live ultimately would, um, would be a testimony to how true your belief is. Right. Um, and, and a lot of times it's really how you live your everyday life. How do, and th this is what Dallas Willard was talking about. How do you respond to suffering? Okay. How do you spend your resources, your time, your money? Okay. How do you walk alongside someone who is suffering? That would ultimately be a greater testimony okay, to the truth of the Christian faith um, than anything else, absolutely. I think in the United States, you have a different challenge where um, it's also political, I guess, uh, um, in just with the whole political, political system of, you know, the left and the right and the conservative and, 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 and Christianity is often perhaps um, much more um, linked to uh, like the Republican Party, for example. Um, and, and I understand why that is the case, you know, but I think there's a lot of other factors that come into play as well, um, which perhaps <coughs> could be off-putting um, in some instances. But again, if you bring it back to um, on an indi individual basis, people would see you uh, and how you live your life, and that would be attractive. And, and to be honest with you, if you are a Christian and people around you um, don't know that you are a Christian in, in a good, in a good positive way, um, I would ask that you figure out why that is the case. Because if we are truly followers of Christ, our lives ought to prompt the question, why are you a Christian? There's something different about you. You know, when I was um, uh, in Turkey, we, you know, because of just the, cult, the, the historical um, barriers and all, we, we never really outwardly say that we're missionaries or share the gospel. A lot of times it's just a law. You spend evenings after evenings of drinking tea and talking about you know, everything else except Jesus in that sense. And really it's a, it's a place where how you're, you live your life is a testimony of the gospel. And uh, one evening, this, this young lady that I've um, been friends with for a while, she asked me, she said, Ai-Ching, can you pray for me? I have, an, ex uh, I have uh, an exam coming up. And I said, you know that when I pray, I pray in the name of Jesus, right? And she's a Muslim. And she said, yes, I do. Because I've seen how you prayed and I've seen how, how, uh, how you respond after you pray. And it's, it's, it's something that is different. And so I said, okay, and I prayed for her, you know. And, and it's not something that I have consciously done. It's just, you know, I, in my conversations with her, sometimes I tell her about my life, which of course is, is uh, not even close to being perfect. But I share my life, I shared my life with her, and she saw that. And I think ultimately people, you know, people are always observing us. You know, you may not even realize that. You see, you say you're a Christian, why? You know, they look at you and see how you live your life, decisions that you make, okay, the friends that you have, the kind of movies that you watch, the songs that you listen to, your response to contemporary issues that are out there. They watch you. They watch us, you know. And, and, and I, again, you know, I cannot emphasize enough <coughs> the importance of, again, spiritual formation according to the character of Christ. Because ultimately, you know, if, if we are followers of Christ and if we um, reflect something of Him, that in itself would be attractive enough for people to ask. So.
wondering if you could stretch your application a little bit. And um, there's a different kind of culture that I was wondering about crossing into. And it's one that I think is closer to home for a lot of us, and that's the college culture. Because mm -hmm. uh, <coughs> I think um, we're hearing a lot, obviously, about people's backgrounds and encountering their worldview, mm -hmm. particularly um, their previous religious assumptions um, about you know, the major points about origins and, and destiny and all that. And so I was just kind of wondering um, if you have any, if you could expand on and maybe if you have any input on if I'm trying to cross into the culture of someone who's in college because it's, it's so different. It's a culture of, um, you know, academics um, versus for other people. Mm -hmm. it's the, you know, it's the party culture and there's all this kind of Good question. Is about the question is about how um, to to I guess share um, and communicate the gospel to someone who is in college, right? Um, you know, it, there is sort of like what they call the college culture, right? And and that that really changes all the time, doesn't it? Um, um, and most of us, and I, I looked across the room, a lot of you are very young, most of you are young people who have just graduated from college perhaps not too long ago, right? So you still kind of have an idea of, well, some of you, most of you, I said, um, you know, so you still have an idea of what college culture is about. And I think it's, um, the thing to do is, you see, when you go into a foreign country to become a missionary, Okay, one of the first things you want to know is you want to learn the language, you want to figure out what are the hot buttons of the culture, and you want to try and see how we can communicate the gospel in a meaningful and relevant way to these people. And I think in the same way when you're talking about college students, you want to learn the language, what is the language that they're speaking? Okay, um, um, what are the hot buttons? What are their hot buttons that you can press? What are the things that concern them? Identity, their future, right? Um, I don't know, those of you who work with college students, what are the questions that are utmost in your mind? Having a good time? That is often not actually the, 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 the issue at hand. That is always uh, an escapism from something else. Perhaps an, a question of identity, you know, of acceptance, all right? Uh, so you want to find out what are the questions and how um, how the Christian faith, faith speaks into those questions and how that's relevant for them. So I don't know, and that only comes if you spend time with college students. You cannot, from a distance, figure out, okay, what, are, what, what, what is it that you know, they're asking? The only way to get to know a certain people group uh, is to spend time with them. Immersion, you know? Uh, the only way to learn a language is best is by immersion, as good as Rosetta Stone is, but the best way is immersion into the culture and into the language. And in the same way, if you want to work among college students, you want to be effective among college students, you have to spend time with college students, even if it means getting a phone call at 2 a.m. and they're complaining to them about their roommate or whatever, right? Um, yeah. So I have a question about uh, sharing the gospel with somebody from a different cultural background. Mm -hmm. um, so um, sometimes, you know, you're sharing, you know, something kind of kind of meaningful and deep, and the other person really responds, mm -hmm. really kind of get it. But at the very root, there's always some, you know, barrier that can't be moved, and that comes from just kind of how they are standing at the line of a very long-standing, you know, cultural tradition that's been passed down to them from mm -hmm. their forefathers, mm -hmm. and for them to you know, so this is so kind of innately rooted in them um, that they feel extremely guilty, right? If, mm -hmm. you know, if they feel like they're abandoning kind of their, their tradition mm -hmm. and, and their, you know, their ancestors and, and all of that. Um, so, when, you know, when, when you're faced with a situation kind of like that, what, what would you do, you know, to kind of unstuck, you know, get your friend unstuck from where they are and help them overcome that barrier? Okay, the question is, you're dealing in, uh, with a situation where a person has, because of the background and the culture, has all these deep-seated beliefs about reality and, and you're kind of stuck, right? And how do you get beyond that? Pray. Pray. Um, because if a person is honestly seek a truth seeker, 
Okay, he would be open to investigate. He would be open. You know, truth will ultimately be um, um, one thing that is worthwhile for them to abandon all. Um, and you have to give them time. You have to be patient with them. You have to recognize the fact that it is very intricate and sensitive because you're dealing with cultural identity, personal identity. Um, and ultimately, you know, it is the work of the Holy Spirit who would convict and who would convert. It is not us. Our, our task and our role is just clear away the muddle, share the gospel, share the truth, defend the faith when necessary, you know. Um, but ultimately, it's up to the Holy Spirit to do that. Um, and I, you know, I'm very confident of, um, of the power of the gospel um, because I have seen how it's just done wonders. Um, on its own. And that's very humbling that we are all called uh, to participate somehow in, in, you know, in, in, in spreading that. But God can very well do it himself, you know, so. Um, I had a question in regards to, um, I know a lot of questions that you address and a lot of what you talk about is in regards to evangelism, but um, in regards to apologetics in specific, um, I just, wanted to know some of your experiences about how to make a culture that is inherently very foreign to, for example, like Asian culture, um, Hebrew and Jewish and like Roman, like knowledge of that culture is very, very foreign to like an Asian person. So how do you make a Jewish man relevant to an Asian person? Great question. How do, how do you make uh, a Jewish man relevant to um, a Chinese person? If you have your Bible, you want to turn to Acts 17. And Paul has given us a very good example here. He was in Athens, and this is uh, probably a portion of uh, in scriptures that's very familiar to all of us. And if you notice Paul's message in Acts 17, And it starts, um, this is his sermon on Mars Hill, uh, that starts from uh, verse 22. If you have time, if you read it, you'll notice that, you know, Paul did not mention the name Jesus in that whole message that he was preaching. He talked about this man, but he didn't say this about this Jewish man or uh, about this, this man who was born uh, um, in Palestine. What he does is after he courteously esteemed the Athenians reverence for God, uh, you know, in fact, he said, you know, the, 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 the text says how he walked around and he sees all these idols and he said, you know, great respect for you guys, you know, this, you, you, you want to make sure that all your bases are covered, you even have one to the unnamed God. In fact, for me, that, that, um, that's very similar to a lot of Taoist Buddhists. Okay, where they want to have all their bases covered. Make sure no God, no God is offended, right, to the unnamed God. And you notice how he talked about, uh, uh, he prefaced his message by going back to the beginning, to the drama of creation in the beginning, right? And he identified the creator of all as the one who is transcendent and personal, the one who is holding command over the history of his creation. Therefore, it's not just merely about for the Jews or for, for a certain people group, but it's, he is the God of all creation. In the beginning, he created. So it's relevant to all of us, regardless of your ethnicity. So you cannot say, oh, because I'm, I don't know, I'm not Jewish or because I'm Chinese, therefore it's not relevant for me. It's not for me, right? And it, I, I think it's great how Paul has done it. And then he, he goes on to describe God's mercy. Notice he still hasn't said the name of Jesus yet. Okay, he goes on to talk about God's mercy in relation to the human condition of which we all can agree on there is a problem, right? And then he sets the stage for the climax of his message, redemption through the death and resurrection of one man of course referring to Jesus, and the need for all people to repent. All right. Paul did not explicitly quote the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, he quoted from writings of pagan Greek poets in the setting that he is. He was quoting from someone that the, his audience were familiar with. Um, 
And I think likewise, sometimes we need not quote verses from the Bible outright to bring across the redemption message. And that's why I think within whatever cultural context that you are working with, you need to have an understanding of what are some of uh, the hot buttons that we can, we can uh, press. What are some of the cultural stories that bring, bring the, 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 um, the truth of the gospel out? You know, and um, there will be instances where the audience will be more receptive to the truth of the gospel when contextual expressions like cultural folk stories or anecdotes are used as illustrations instead. And then you bring, this is the man, Jesus, who has died for us. You see, sometimes we forget that the gospel is not just in the New Testament. The gospel starts in Genesis. And we must not forget the gospel starts in Genesis. Okay, the climax was on the cross, but ultimately, the end of the story is in the Revelation, where all people of all nations and all tongues will be there to worship God. It's not a truncated message that is found only in the New Testament, but right from the beginning, right from the beginning, the redemptive process has been kick-started. So. That is perhaps one way um, to avoid someone from saying, well, it's just for the Jews. It's not relevant to us, you know. I, is my time up? Oh, okay, my time is up. So uh, if you have further questions, I'm still here. You can come up and talk to me. I hope this was helpful. Thank you. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.